0: Hello, and welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M. And this week, we're going to sit down with Professor Moshe Schiff from McGill University. This is a discussion that goes along with a couple other discussions with Dr. Randy Gerardle and Dr. Jeffrey Bland, where we're going to look at sort of the upstream understandings of why humans have evolved to be able to deal with the adverse environments as well as understanding what the actual science says about how we are able to deal with adverse environments, specifically through the lens of epigenetics. Dr. Schiff, who is going to give us an understanding of this data, is one of the preeminent researchers in this space. Dr. Schiff received his Ph.D. from the Hebrew University in Israel and then did his postdoctoral fellowship in genetics at Harvard University Medical School before joining the Department of Pharmacology and Therapeutics at McGill University in Montreal back in 1989. Dr. Schiff is the founder of the first pharma to develop epigenetic pharmacology called Methylgene Incorporated, as well as being a principal investigator in the field of epigenetics at the company HKG Epitherapeutics in Hong Kong, where he is working on breakthroughs in cancer biology from the field of epigenetics and cancer resolution. Dr. Schiff's lab proposed two decades ago that DNA methylation was the prime target therapeutically for cancer interventions as well as he did the first set of experiments looking at the social environment and the effects of social environment early in life on DNA methylation, which launched the entire field of social epigenetics. We're going to get into some of this research looking specifically at his research with high-licking and grooming versus low-licking and grooming mother rats and their children, which sort of gave us the first understanding of the nature versus nurture story. Is the disease based on just your hardwired genetics that you got from mom and dad? Or is something else going on where the involvement of the mother in the experience of the child in early life has a differential outcome through something now we call epigenetics. And this is where the story gets super fascinating. And on the heels of the discussion with Dr. Jurdle, who did the groundbreaking research on the agouti mouse and understanding of epigenetics in general, we're going to follow up on that story now with Dr. Schiff. Well, hello and welcome to the show, Dr. Schiff. Moshe, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been quite a while since I've seen you in person, but uh, I understand you're in Hong Kong right now, as we just spoke offline. So, thank you for taking the time to share all of your wonderful wisdom with the listening audience.
1: Happy to be to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's fantastic. Your work is some of the most eye-opening pieces of literature that I've read and TED talks that I've watched. And you know, I remember back in 2010 when I listened to your pod. Uh, Pre-podcast, I guess that it was called CDs that I would get in the mail from Je- Jeff Bland, and he interviewed you back in 2010. And it was such an aha moment, as he always says, for listening to your talk after Randy Jirtle's and hearing this complete flip on its head. Medicine, you know, I go into school, Emory University. I'm trained that introns are junk DNA, exons are the coding region, and your your inheritance is uh, based on mom and dad, and that's what you get. Good luck. Have a nice day. And your work flipped a lot of that upside down. Now, the audience has heard from from Dr. Jurdle some of the basics of epigenetics. But that being said, let's sort of go back and and from your perspective discuss epigenetics in the sense of how your work, especially the work with the the nature versus nurture experiments and rats, how that really started the understanding of behavioral essentially behavioral epigenetics, or for me, just the, the 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 basics of you really sort of proved Lamarckian theory, as opposed to what we always thought was deterministic Darwinian theory.
1: Right. I mean, epigenetics is the software of the DNA, and I'm sure Randy Jertle told you that. Yeah. And um, we always thought that that software is written during um, embryogenesis uh, by a very predictable script that is in the DNA. So the DNA also, of course, writes the the epigenetics because it's all coded in the DNA. But we thought that it's all almost automatic. And uh, the truth is that a lot of it is, right? I mean, when a baby comes out of the womb, the head is in the place, the hands are in the place, and the eyes are in the place. And that's epigenetic. Epigenetics takes one DNA and creates many many different apps that run the different organs in our body. So most of the epigenetic story is just normal development that is the same in in all humans or in all organisms. And uh, it is predictable. However, epigenetics allows for a window of freedom. And uh, there is some freedom within that determined predetermined uh, state. That is, epigenetics could be modified or influenced by experiences and exposures. And now we understand that these experiences could be preconception, post-conception, prenatal, postnatal, and during any point in life. And I think the evolutionary reason for that is that the genetics is amazing, DNA is amazing, it's an amazing thing that can write so much of what we are. But it's insufficient to cope with the dynamic changes in the world. And therefore, the genome needs something more dynamic, something with more freedom uh, to respond to uh, ch- uh, to changes that were not anticipated by evolution. And uh, it allows, I think it increased our fitness, it increased our ability to cope with changing things. And probably humans are the most epigenetic animals there, because we are the most adaptive animals. We're probably one of the few creatures that can live in any temperature, any weather, any climate, under any different conditions. And our adaptability and flexibility probably has to do due to a very sophisticated epigenome.
0: Right. And I think that, to me, is the key piece in this discussion, because when we think about the Lamarckian way of looking at the world, uh, when he, you know, took him 200 years, frankly, after his death to even get credit for the ability to understand that we change or we evolve in lifetime, as opposed to Darwinian selection, yeah. and and we die yeah. out. So, your research and the work of Randy Jurdle and others has sort of said, hey, this is the part of the ability to make these changes occur real time. And to your point, we thought it was postnatally, maybe prenatal, now it's everywhere. And the fact that that modifiability is consistent and continuous sort of gives to your to your other point, this free will or this free ability to be adaptable in any environment. So knowing that, I think there were two really interesting examples. One was your seminal research back in 06 or 07, I think it was, with the, the nature versus nurture experiment. And then I'd love you to touch on the Canadian right. ice storm, which is sort of a human- experiment that we couldn't plan for because you certainly can't have a control group that suffers but mother nature does those things to us
1: right i mean humans are very difficult to study and that's why many researchers avoid avoid humans and because research lies simplicity but life is not simple and humans are complex and it's very difficult to tease apart genetics and epigenetics and, and, and that's why this discussion is ongoing, because you can never provide this conclusive experiment, as you can do with animals, right. as we did in the maternal care experiment where we could cross-foster animals. Yeah, you can't do it with humans. But sometimes nat- nature does experiments with us when there's a randomized disaster. And uh, you know people are hit by that disaster in very random ways. So you can't argue that, you know, because they had a specific gene, they found themselves in the ice storm. So people find themselves in the ice storm with different kinds of genes, with different kinds of socioeconomic backgrounds, with everything different. And uh, you can ask the question, is the extent of the disaster suffering correlated with changes in um, in the way the genome functions and in eventually in the way people grow and function. And the ice storm was one example of disasters like this, but we have a lot of disasters that one can study, unfortunately, that randomly hit different people in Quebec. And um, and at the time, of course, there were women who were pregnant, there were women who delivered just at this time. And one can ask the question whether the stress of the mothers um, has affected the long-term development of of the children and um, this unique uh, study that uh, you know was directed by my colleague at Miguel Suzanne King who followed all the behavioral metabolic immune phenotypes of these children and there were there was a clear effect on behavior there was clear effect on the immune system there was a clear effect on the metabolic system that correlated with measures of stress of the mother uh, during the ice storm. So we're looking at kids who are 15 years old, and their mother has experienced stress for a short time during the ice storm. And that has an impact that we see it after 15 years. And um, we also looked at the DNA methylation changes. And there were many DNA methylation changes in their immune system. So when we looked at uh, T cells in their blood, we could see broad changes in dna methylation and they hit those genes that are connected to the to the phenotypes that we saw so we saw you know immune effects so we had immune related genes we saw metabolic effects we had genes related to the insulin pathway and 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 there were also genes re, rela, uh, related to uh, stress and and, uh, and and behavior and uh, this taught us a few things This taught us that the changes that we originally saw in animal do have enamels do happen in, in people. And and that um, exposure to stress, whether it's human you know, uh, caused or nature caused uh, stress, uh, can have long-term impacts. And um, you can look at it from, uh, from two angles. You can look at it as, oh, wow, it's a disaster, and it has disastrous uh, consequences. Or that actually the epigenetic response and the physiological response is essentially an, an attempt to adapt to the signals that come uh, through through the disaster. So the way I see it is the mother signals to the child, this is a rough world. And if it is a rough world, you have to prepare yourself to a rough world. And in a rough world, you have to be super anxious, super careful, because you don't know where you know where the new attack would come. Uh, you have to binge food because you don't know when your next meal would come, and and you have to shift your immune system to treat to treat with potential wounds and things like that It can come through fights. So it's possible that this whole mechanism by which signals early in life of of distress, you know, change the way we develop, is not necessarily to cause bad things, but it's to um, it's to protect us and and to uh, it's the mechanism by which one generation can talk to the other generation and tell them your DNA is not enough, there is additional information you must bear so you can deal with this world that has changed. And um, in this case, the ice storm gave a signal of a change, of of, um, a disastrous condition uh, at early life. But we need to think that every adaptation could become more adaptive. So, you know, binging, which can save your life if you're in a concentration camp, it can kill you if you live in a middle class society right because you now uh, are binging without with no need but you don't know why you're binging you're binging because you had the signal early in life that life is going to be tough and there's going to be famine everywhere and you better eat the meals you see right. and you can think about the same in the immune system right you know a hyperactive immune system can save your life if you if you want to get into fights can can cause you asthma and other things um, you know later in life. So so the way I look at it is the epigenome is essentially the mechanism by which our DNA can adapt to a, a dynamic world, but sometimes it becomes more adaptive and it can cause us trouble.
0: Right. And then we end up polar bears in the desert, as I've heard said many times, where our genes Uh are much better suited for an environment that we're no longer in or find ourselves in. So let's pivot back. And then I want to, I'm going to actually come back to this discussion you have, because I want to look at it specifically from the autism perspective, but let's go back and look at your re- initial work. So you're sitting there, my, you're, you're with Dr. Meany, and you guys have decided you're going to do a little bit of research looking at the cross-fostering experiment. Explain the cross-foster experiment and specifically what happened in the stress r- response mechanisms and how how did this really change our understanding of nature versus nurture? And sure. Um, Dr.
1: Meany has noticed that there is a variation in the way rats uh, take care of their pups, very similar to the way if you take a group of human mothers, um, there is a uh, natural variation in the way they, they handle their kids. And um, he was interested in the extremes you know, of this natural variation, those who did a lot of it, a lot of handling, and those who did very little. And when you follow the uh, the pups uh, that received high care versus low care, you see behavioral differences. And the first behavioral difference that that caught in, uh, the eyes was the stress response. So the animals that received low care are, are uh, highly stressed and cannot control stress. Stress versus the animals that um, received uh, intensive care. And um, and this could be, well, genetics, right? It could be that, you know, the same gene that controls, let's say, the maternal care also controls stress response. And if that's true, then it's a simple inheritance. But it could also not be genetic. and And, and the way to test it is by splitting the babies or the pups of of a high rat uh, into two kinds of uh, fostering mothers, either high or low. So now you can ask the question, who is going to determine how this animal will develop? Is it the biological mother or is it the fostering mother? If it's biological mother, it's consistent with genetics. If it's the fostering mother, it's consistent with something else. It means that it is the behavior, not the genes, that alter the the, behavior, the character of the pups. And the answer was that it was the genes, or at least a large fraction of it was in the behavior per se. Now, this is a study that is almost impossible to do in humans, because in any case of father. I mean, there are, of course, a lot of cases of fosterings in humans, and we did study that. But the problem with fostering in humans is, the, again, you can't tease apart. There's a reason why this kid is fostered, right? Because right. maybe it's the bad genes of the parents. Right. And um, so you can't tease it apart. But in, a, in a, an animal experiment, a rodent experiment, you can. And 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 I think that's provided the first evidence that behavior in a clean way, without genetic confounds, could change the, uh, the the phenotype of the of the of the pup, and if, and the changes are probably not limited to stress. They probably include everything in the body.
0: Right, and and from the methylation level in when you actually looked at the DNA, you had the little lollipops as some people call them, or the carbon right. atom with the hydrogen groups were sticking right. on the upstream coding region, pre coding region of the glucocorticoid receptors. Was it again?
1: Yes. This is a receptor that is literally the sensor of stress in the brain, and its its job in the brain is to control how we respond to stress. Of course, we have to respond to stress; that saves our lives. But if we if we just keep responding to stress when there's no stress, that can kill us. So essentially, what the brain does it regulates the response to stress, and and the way it regulates it is by sensing how much hormones of stress you have and keep making sure you don't have too much of them. And When the gene that controls that is less active, then the whole process is is less active, and the control of stress is destructive.
0: Right. And I think this is the first time when I listened to you speak to this on Dr. Bland's podcast, was the first time I had this thought process around, okay, this makes sense now why 10 people can be in the same event down the road, but one person or two people have significantly more stress response to that same event, because- prior an adverse childhood event or something changes their methylation so that they have an upregulation in stress response. And so this was the, the seminal moment for me to say, okay, this really makes everything else that we're doing now in medicine, social determinants of health, really trying to access the levers of how people end up in these situations in the first place, that's controllable. Clearly, some things are uncontrollable, Canadian right. ice storms, whatever. Right. But if it's modifiable, controllable, we can help poverty, we can help other social determinants, we could reduce potentially these methylation events or histone deacetylase events or whatever other you know, epigenetic events from occurring such that when the person runs into a stress down the road, they are less likely to end up with PTSD or whatever. Does that follow?
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, this is where I, why why I use the word freedom, because right. it suggests that there's something we can do about it, right? And to 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 a certain extent, it is it is ta- it's done, right? The idea that you have some responsibility. Right. For others and yourself, right. right right and and also the responsibility to others is understanding that if we are aggressive towards other human beings, uh, it has long-term consequences beyond the argument that we have now. Right. And um, you know, wars have long-term consequences. disasters that we cause have long-term consequences. But also the the normal interactions that we have, you know, if they are aggressive, they're, they're stressful. Uh, they would have consequences, and our children, especially on our children, and and these children when they grow up, you know, unfortunately, this becomes a cycle, right? A cycle of aggression that they will pass it to their children because they were aggressed, they would aggress, and their children would aggress, and and if it is epigenetic, we probably could stop it by stopping aggression in one cycle. We can, you know, or, or uh, removing the conditions that perpetuate that aggression. Right, we can really disrupt this uh, transmission,
0: and and I wonder if that's what's actually happening. Some of this new therapeutics around psychedelic medicine and trying to break the exposure of whatever the connection between the the, the brain and the body somebody had with PTSD. I mean, the right. data around that's getting super interesting. I have not read anything related to to epigenetics, but I'm sure that sounds like to me it could be part of it. Again, I don't know that answer, so I'm just positing. Um, but, you know, for me, the the Canadian ice storm study, you, you initially, I think, um, in the research noted that Dr. King had an increase in autism. Do we understand from the methylation perspective what's going on that caused the increased rate of autism in that population?
1: No, no, we don't. We don't. I mean, still, there is a big distance between, you know, because we measure methylation only in the immune system, right? They, these are living children, so we didn't have right. access to their brain. And right. the other thing we need to understand is the effects are not very strong. Uh, that is, you know, it is it is a combination of numerous probably right. changes right. That, that causes that. And, you know, the simplistic thinking uh, of traditional science, which was uh, you know, very reductionist, and there's one gene, one disease, or one gene right. gets methylated, and then there's trouble. And right. that's probably not true. Right. And and you know, uh, thankfully, mathematics have adv- has advanced in a way that we can analyze now numerous amount of data, and uh, you know, with machine learning, we can actually deal with with infinite number of variables, and so we understand how networks work. And so it's very hard to tease apart one element in the network. And, um, and it is a complex set of probably environmental exposures that create a complex set of you know epigenetic changes that can create complex behavior changes. And so it's not a very simple... I mean, of course, there are examples in, in medicine of very simple genes. One gene gets methylated and the system is, is shut down. But they usually happen in cancer or certain very case, rare cases of, you know, genetically inherited disease. But most of what happens in medicine is very complicated. And that's why uh, no single solution can work, right? Unless right. the solution is also a complex solution.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think that's sort of what we're seeing in a lot of the... Physicians who are taking an anti-reductionist approach, I look at the Alzheimer's data with Dale Bredesen at the Buck Institute and you know, 43, 44 things being pushed on, levers being pushed on to try and ameliorate a change because of the fact, to your point, it's right. not one single thing. I and mean, we spent $8 billion on Alzheimer's research trying to fix plaque and tau and realizing that that's not oh. the real problem. There's other things underneath it. But to the earlier right. point, I think the methylation marks were in- immune cells. And I think some of the research that I've been looking at, especially with maternal activation syndrome, where children turn out with an autistic phenotype and they have a massive upregulation in IL-6, IL-17, and these pro-inflammatory cytokines. To me, that's where I think the data is going to continue to push that it's immune dysregulation in maternal states that's being driven by, to your point, various exposome or exposure-based issues. And and you know, where that all takes over time, I, I'm I'm curious to see how this plays out. But I'm, you know, when I look at statistics from, you know, obesity, somebody who has excess weight gain as pregnancy increases the risk of autism 2x. If you have diabetes as well, you increase the risk of autism 4x. Right. So to me, that's all leading to the issue of inflammation. And so I think somewhere right. along this pathway, I think you're, you're sort of proving without being able to say definitively that the likely answer is that it's inflammation that's driving the phenotypes that we're seeing, that it is functional. I think sort of akin to what you're saying earlier that I think where my family history is really replete with cardiovascular disease, both of my parents were born in, in Europe. My father was born in Poland in 1936. My mother was born in Germany in 1945. Both had major war traumas. And, and in that whole phenotype of my family, somewhere along the way, we have this genetic predisposition to be able to tolerate bacterial disease and infections very well. Oh, by the way, that's not so great if eating a bad diet. So the LDL and HDL, which helps clear this mechanism. So somewhere along the way to your point, this adaptability has been very useful until you end up in an American system with high volumes of calorically dense food, lots of chemicals and lots of stress. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's it's, cheap calories. Say that one again. I think America created cheap
1: calories. You know, you can, yes. you can get calories for little money. And I think that was the dramatic change. Usually calories were correlated with resources. And right. so only rich people had access to uh, calories. And uh, once a poor person has access to high calories, that's a very dangerous combination.
0: Right. Especially when they don't have access to other foods. Unfortunately, almost like an indentured right. servant to... Because they became expensive, right? Correct. You know, when the federal government subsidized so foods then, that are garbage. The
1: world was reversed. Like vegetables, were, which were the, you know, the food of the poor became the food of the rich. And meat, which was the food of the rich, became the food of the poor.
0: Yeah. Ironically, so, when I interviewed Kara Fitzgerald on her work on, um, you know, she's doing the work on anti-aging. And one of the things we talked about was how important liver is as a source of methyl donors in human food, you know, giving right, exactly. high quality, you know, methyl that that was the poor person's food. Cause that was in general, the food that, right. you know, people didn't have access because the meats were the ones that everyone okay. wanted. Now it's sort of flip-flopped and now everybody's eating the garbage part right. of the animal, which is the, 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 the protein meat, instead of the more important part, which is the, right. the, the organs. Yeah. It, it's, it's quite incredible. Yeah. So, Let's do a little bit of a deeper dive into your work now. I know you've, you're a huge amount of work looking at cancer biology. And so one of the things I'm really curious about, as I've started watching this space be explored and grow, how is the upstream regulation via the chromatin driving a lot of this stuff? Because that was very difficult for me to understand in the beginning. But, you know, for the audience that aren't the physicians, chromatin is the part of the chromosome is, is being unwound, you have these DNA strands that are wrapped around these proteins called histones, and that is compacted into this beautiful structure that allows this really long genetic code to be crunched in this tiny micro size uh, you know, uh, book in every cell of our body. How do we understand now the chromatin regulation of epigenetics?
1: I mean, epigenetics regulates chromatin, right? I mean, chromatin, epigenetics is part of chromatin, and it's it essentially responsible for the structure that wraps DNA and, um, and responsible for the access of DNA to uh, the machinery that turns DNA into into RNA, which turns into protein. So essentially, the DNA is a very, very long place And uh, it's very hard to access. And in order to get anything done in the cell, you need to access the DNA. So by regulating accessibility to DNA, you regulate which parts of the DNA will will be expressed and which not. So what happens in cancer is a total revolution uh, of of the chromatin. The cancer uh, allows many genes that otherwise would not be expressed to be expressed and others that usually are expressed or silence. So it's it's like in the, it's like a corporation that changed complete strategy, right? So every every office in that corporation is doing something else. And so now the cell is busy with just growing and spreading rather than doing its normal function. And the changes in, in DNA methylation in cancer are just so starkly stark I mean it's it's you know you don't need any statistics to see it' it's it's it's, it's amazing and it's the easiest DNA methylation to study because of the, the the tremendous changes in difference from you know behavioral changes that are very subtle here we see massive changes
0: and 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 when you say massive changes we're talking about hi- lots of hypomethylated regions or is it mixed oh, again so oh, there's hyper hypo oh, oh both it's, and, and it's so an
1: extremely complex change yeah
0: okay and so when I think about this from the perspective of methylation in general so putting that little carbon atom with the three hydrogens on part of the DNA Upstream of the actual protein coding region right. in order to even have access to that you have to unwind the chromatin which means you have to have some form right. of a enzyme that's saying hey let's unwind you before you can even have the DNA methyl transferase come in and say hey let's transfer the carbon atom on there so do we understand where the signal comes from to unwind the chromatin in the first place? Is that, again, just one of these unknowns? It just happens? I mean, yes, there is a lot of biochemistry there.
1: And, uh, you know, it's too sophisticated and too complex to discuss now. But um, uh, but there is a lot of knowledge. I think in, in, the, in the case of cancer, we do understand uh, all, all the changes that, a lot of the changes that are happening and they involve you know changes in regulation of basic enzymes that regulate methylation, regulate histone acetylation. And then um, the question is what triggers that? And and this could be triggered by many different things. Uh, you know, and I believe many things can trigger this change, but once it happens, it has a life of its own. And yeah. I think because I'm getting I a signal that I have to go to the other meeting. You know.
0: oh, okay. No uh, worries. Well. We'll uh, we'll wrap this up then. All right. Well, I'll I'll, I'll I'll let you run. We got to where we needed to get to. I appreciate your time very much, Doctor yeah. Schiff and uh, Moshe. It's it's wonderful thank to you. be able to speak to you, and uh, I, I look forward to more work that you're doing and seeing the beautiful things that you bring to sure. our world and making humans live healthier in this in this process. So thank you so much for your time, and I hope the rest of your your day thank over you. in Hong thank Kong you. goes it was, wonderfully. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah. Bye-bye now. So what a thoroughly moving conversation with one of the leading experts in the world in epigenetics and the understanding behind behavioral epigenetics as well as cancer biology and the epigenetics related. I can't tell you how excited I am to continue to follow the work of doctors like Moshe Schiff and Randy Jurdle and others in this space who are really trying to unlock the understandings of why we are who we are, why we look the way we do, why we act the way we do, why we do what we do, how our stress responses, how our emotional responses, how our cancer biology, our metabolic biology, all of this is tied to the exposome. The exposome, which is anything environmental in our lives that can affect the ability of our genes to decide to be read or not read in a way. And his work with the theory of nature versus nurture is profound, where the environment of mom has such an incredible impact on the environment and the life of the child. So what we learned is that the genetic code that dictates our health or our child's health is related to the adverse childhood events or great childhood events around prenatal, perinatal, and postnatal life. Dr. Schiff and Dr. Meany were at the front end of this discussion around epigenetics in the early 2000s at McGill University in Canada. They performed this seminal research in rats and we're going to go through that a little bit more and in an article that Dr. Schiff explained this back in 2011, he stated, we propose that the modulation of DNA methylation in response to environmental cues early in life serves as a mechanism of lifelong genome adaptation that molecularly embeds the early experiences of a child nurture in the genome nature. And quote, so there is the statement that says it all. We are not just an amalgam of our parents' genetics. There is a lot to be said about nurture and how critical that is that we are ushered into this world in a way that is safe. It is nourishing, caring, loving, and all of the above in order for us to have the best outcomes. Now, we can't control everything, but boy, we should really try hard as a society to help children have really, really high-quality, safe lives reading the book by Alison Gopnik, The Carpenter and the Gardener, I think of this space as the gardeners. We want mom and dad to be gardeners for the child, giving them great soil, sunlight, water, and a place to grow. That analogy to me is brilliant. When I go back to Dr. Schiff again, what I believe he is trying to say is that the changes to our child's DNA sticky notes that say read or not read me in response to the environmental cues, like parenting can have lifelong effects on our child's genome, the book of life. This in turn sets the stage for how a child may respond to any, any environmental stress later on in life. What that stress is we can't really predict, but We know stress is coming. Everybody undergoes stress at one point in time in their life and sometimes worse than others. Unfortunately for us, if it turns out that this environmental cue is negative or the stress is negative, that can place dysfunctional sticky notes, methylation related, on a child's genome that can be conserved over future generations, which in and of itself is problematical, where as somebody like myself who had parents born in war-torn Poland and Germany, Is there some sense of that epigenetic marks related to the trauma of living through a war passed down through my DNA? And how does that play out in my life? How I respond to stresses in my life, how I respond to others, how my my metabolism responds. There's so much to be learned here. I believe in some way, shape, or form that this is the main reason that we are seeing such a steep climb in the instance of many diseases in children. Our epigenome, is being bombarded by environmental inputs that are not in keeping with our health and physiology. As you've heard me say many times on this podcast, there are far too many chemicals in our environment. There's far too much stress in our environment, worsening with the social media, phone reality. There's far too much unhealthy food in our environment, especially. The cheap unhealthy food that is in our food deserts and locations where folks in impoverished situations with high needs of social determinants of health are being bombarded by high calorie, poor quality foods. What about the exposure to drugs now becoming a huge problem? I unfortunately care for many children born to drug addicted mothers. What is that doing to the epigenome? What is that saying to the child? What is my life going to be like? right? These are scary thoughts, but this is the reality of the existence of the modern American experience. And there's so many more exposome-related phenomenon that could be driving the epigenetic marks to be functional or conversely dysfunctional. And this is, for me, the important part of doing this research and understanding this research. So if we look at Dr. Schiff's hallmark research, he looked at the response of rat offspring to differential social grooming and subsequent stress responses over time. His group cross-fostered rat pups born to high-licking and grooming mothers, subsequently given to a low-licking and grooming mother to raise and nurture, vice versa. Animals that were poorly groomed by a low-licking and grooming mother rat, despite having the genes of a high-licking and grooming mother, had a higher long-term stress response because of brain stress receptor changes that occurred. The study showed that a baby is primed epigenetically, again through methylation of the genome, to expect a tough world if his mother was not a loving groomer. Conversely, the high-looking grooming offspring born to a genetically low-looking grooming phenotype had reduced receptors for stress, expecting a happier world, and then living thus with less stress over time. For me, the real proof of the study was noted when these animals had much different responses to the same stressors later in life. Poorly nurtured rat pups had more stressful responses to the same stimulus compared to the high-groomed pups or those that had really nice nurturing. At the simplest level, this research shows us that a baby can develop a heightened stress response later in life. Evolutionarily, this makes complete sense to me. If a baby perceives that a stressful world exists, then her stress-related genes will be turned on in anticipation of continued issues requiring certain stress receptors to be highly functional. This is likely the intuitive reason that certain cultures shielded their women and children from external stressors during pregnancy and early childhood. Dr. Roman and colleagues in 2014 persisted in this line of research in humans and found similar results with alterations in stress glucocorticoid receptors of children exposed to physical abuse, adverse childhood events, the stress receptor gene sets in children exposed to physical abuse had increased epigenetic methylation that down-regulated the gene and upregulates the child's stress response. On another line of epigenetic thinking, Dr. Mitchell in 2017 looked at telomere length in children after the death or loss of a father, a severe stressor. Their group found a 14% reduction in telomere length in the father loss group. Telomere tails protect the DNA code from damage and are highly associated with longevity. This is profound as telomere length shortening causes significant issues of social and physical negative outcomes. Confounding this research even further, Dr. Slavich, S-L-A-V-I-C-H, and colleagues looked at the perceived response to stress in humans and gene response. What they found is even more disturbing. Your perception of an event has the ability to alter gene expression even further. This may explain the differential response of a group of soldiers being exposed to a roadside bomb where one has a post-traumatic stress syndrome and others do not. I could go on and on and on with the epigenetic research that is emerging and has been published to date, and this research continues to prove the reality of environment-gene interactions and that the exposome is profoundly affecting our children. However, we won't belabor that point. The better path now is to think of how to alter this effect. As Dr. Schiff says, we have some sense of control over this. Ideally, we would like to shelter our mother-child dyads from all significant stressors during pregnancy and childhood until they are significantly older and their genes are well-established and running full steam ahead. Clearly, this is a little bit Pollyannish on my side as life Happens to us and often not by choice. And frankly, I'm not convinced that that which is being promoted by government, either state or federal, are in keeping with this ethos. That being said, we do have the ability at our personal level to make and take choices and to learn how to perceive events in a positive light. How can we see events in a positive light? How do we choose this route? For me, that is where we all need to sit down and start spending time talking to ourselves about how to deal in a positive way. Tell your brain to think positively. Look at the half glass full. But if you suffer traumas, I think the traumas are baked into your body. And I think at that point, you need to seek therapy that is a bit deeper, whether that's potentially now with psilocybin and ayahuasca, under therapeutic environments that's emerging as a really good methodology or how about internal family systems models which is a more novel integrative approach to individual psychotherapy developed in the 1980s by Dr. Schwartz it combines systems thinking which is the cognitive side of mental health with a view of the mind as made up of relatively discrete subpersonalities each with its own unique viewpoint and qualities internal family systems uses psychology particularly as developed for family therapy to understand how these collections of subpersonalities are organized we also call this parts work and in the IFS model the three major subtypes are exiles which re- which represents psychological trauma often adverse childhood events in childhood that sort of is baked into our body that we carry pain and fear associated with. And that part of us becomes a polarizing figure in our experiences. There's the managers, which take on a preemptive and protective role. They influence the way a person interacts with the external world, protecting themselves from harm and preventing painful traumatic experiences from coming back into their system, i.e. the conscious awareness. And then there's the firefighters. They emerge when an exile breaks out and demands attention. They work to divert attention away from the person who has the exile personality's hurt and shame, which leads to impulsive and inappropriate, rate in inappropriate behaviors like overeating, drug use, violence, over-sexual behaviors, and the above. They can also distract that person from their pain by excessively focusing attention on something else, like overworking or over-medicating. And so getting at these three types is key. The internal family systems does this primarily by looking at the parts and trying to figure out how to unwind them. The three primary types of relationships that occur in these systems are protection, polarization, and alliance. Protection is provided mostly by managers and firefighters trying to protect anyone from harm. Polarization occurs between two parts that battle each other to determine how a person feels or behaves in any situation. And the alliances formed between any two parts in this system working together to accomplish any goal to protect the person from pain. And then the IFS model goes on to figure out through individual therapy how to unwind all of these parts so that they are no longer working against the health of the person over time. How do we unwind the trauma so that it is no longer beating us back? So that's another model to look at. And there are more ways of dealing with this, but I think it's an individual deep dive that has to happen in order to unwind significant adverse childhood events or traumas that, to me, are driving major, major problems in epigenetics and then leading to diseases that we see baked into our metab- metabolism, neurological systems, immunological systems, or so much more. Getting back to Dr. Schiff, I'm going to give a little bit of background again into some of the terminology for those that are interested in understanding. In his website at McGill University, he's got, what is the epigenome? While genomic information is in uniform in different cells of complex organisms, the epigenome controls the differential expression of genes in specific cells. The programming of gene expression profiles is therefore dependent on the epigenome. The epigenome is composed of two modules, a component that is part of the covalent structure of DNA methylated cytosines located in the dinucleotide sequence CG and a noncovalent module. Our understanding of the covalent and non-covalent module of the epigenome is the chromatin and its associated chromatin modifying and remodeling activities is rapidly expanding in recent years. It is now becoming clear that modifications of histones, And their tails by acetylation, phosphorylation, and methylation plays an important role determining the positioning of nucleosomes on DNA and the compactness of chromatin. Chromatin structure determines the state of activity of genes by gating the access of the transcription machinery to transcriptional regulatory regions. Chromatin structure plays a role in other genomic activities such as recombination and repair. Changes in chromatin structure play an important role in the silencing of certain genes in cancer, and histone deacetylase inhibitors have demonstrated anti-cancer effect. So in essence, what that is basically saying is that our DNA is wrapped up in chromosomes. Everybody knows those things. We've seen them, the X and Y chromosomes, and then the other 22 numbered chromosomes. And then they unwind to form chromatin right? And those chromatin are basically these proteins that are called histones with the DNA wrapped around it, tightly packed. And as it's unwound, then we have the ability to read the DNA and transcribe it into a protein, which then allows us to do anything we want, all the proteins in our body for function. That chromatin, when it's unpacked, is what is driving the ability to allow these methyl groups to be put on or off, these sticky notes. So if chromatin is not unwound, methylation cannot occur. So this is a regulatory step in the process of methylation. And so these things called histone deacetylases, these are enzymes that allow the histone to unwind, are another part of the epigenome story. And there's a lot going on here. This programming, which allows us humans who don't have a ton of genes to have an incredibly diverse repertoire of abilities. This was sort of the crazy part. When the human genome project went into effect, we expected humans to have millions and millions of genes. We knew that a fruit fly had about 13,600 genes, and then a worm like uh, C. elegans has 19,500 genes. Rice has 45,000 genes, and corn has 50,000 genes, and wheat, I think, has 80,000 genes. So humans must have had millions. Well, the answer was no. Humans had between 20 and 25,000 genes only. So that was an aha moment that there's something else going on here. And that was the whole intron junk DNA story. The exons or the protein coding regions were what we knew existed because that's how we had gene protein transcription that allows us to have function. These introns as junk DNA area was the part where we're like, this means nothing. Well, it turns out that's the entire upstream epigenetic area where all of these myriad changes can occur that allow us to be different. And that's the story that Dr. Jurdle and Dr. Schiff have so elegantly proven to us. The Lamarckian reality that we are sitting in a world where we do have some effect on our outcome because of environmental exposures and exposome realities. So this is huge, 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 huge information now that gives us this free will to some extent, Right. And so on his website, he goes on further to say, what is DNA methylation? We've talked a bit about this, but in the scientific terms, it says DNA methylation is the addition to this flexible and dynamic module of the epigenome, which is associated with the genome, but is not part of its covalent structure. The genome is covalently modified by addition of a methyl group, a carbon atom with three hydrogens at the fifth position of the cytosine ring. Since the methyl group is connected to DNA by a strong chemical bond, it is considered stable and fixed mark. The vast majority of methylated cytosines in vertebrate genomes are found in dinucleotide sequence, Cg. Not all Cg dinucleotide sequences are methylated, though. Different Cg's are methylated in different tissues, creating a pattern of methylation that is gene and tissue specific. Thus, there is good correlation between the state of activity of genes and lack of methylation of CGs in the regulatory regions. Remarkably, there is also a tight correlation between the chromatin structure and the status of DNA methylation. We propose that the DNA methylation pattern is steady state equilibrium of DNA methylation and demethylation reactions. DNA methylation is catalyzed by DNA methyltransferase enzyme activity and demethylation catalyzed by demethyl trans- excuse me, demethylase enzymes. The DNA methylation reaction is stimulated by inactive chromatin and demethylation by active chromatin. Thus, the direction of the DNA methylation reaction is determined by chromatin structure. Again, a scientific way of basically saying that we have the ability, once we unwind the chromatin, to stick these sticky notes, these carbon atoms with three hydrogens, all over the place, and how they are represented on our DNA actually is somewhat stable, but also rapidly moving based on what's happening in the environment. And so we can measure these things, which is what has been done by different groups, including um, Kara Fitzgerald and her Younger You Project, to start to understand what does the methylome or the, the the methylation pattern look like in a human, and what does that mean for their ability to be healthy. And we're going to learn so much more about this over the next decade or more that we can hopefully be able to learn to manipulate it like Dr. Schiff is working on at his HKG epigenetics company in Hong Kong. Are we going to be able to unwind some cancers by working on the methylation because we know that cancer is highly involved in epigenetics? And on that point, his website states, cancer is an epigenetic disease. It is now very clear that cancer is causing problems in humans through epigenome." Effects In most tumors, the DNA methylation pattern is defective. Vast regions of, of the genome lose their methylation, while specific regions are heavily methylated. Understanding the mechanisms that link the chromatin structure and DNA methylation are extremely important for unraveling the possible mechanisms responsible for DNA methylation pattern in normal tissues. Possible physiological alterations of DNA methylation patterns throughout life and during the aging process and its aberration in cancer. Before we are able to properly target DNA methylation in cancer therapy, we ought to understand which of the changes in the DNA methylation machinery and DNA methylation pattern are causal for cancer and which are a consequence of the transformation process. So again, wow, pause. The cancer in and of itself is somehow hijacking our system through methylation to hypomethylate certain regions, which we saw in Randy Jurdle's work was done by plastics, And hypermethylate in other regions, which we saw was done by foods. There's a lot more there. So, is the story behind cancer biology related to chemicals a hypomethylation story? Is the cancer story related to hypomethylation due to poor quality foods not being hypermethylated right? Or is it just the location of the regions that's being methylated the problem? And there's so much more going on here. So, when we think about all of this stuff in concert, the entire picture, the entire story as we have seen through the lens of Dr. Schiff is that we have some ability to take care and control of our outcomes by working on the basics of functional integrative medicine, diet, stress reduction, exercise, chemical avoidance, basics of human health that put the polar bear in the Antarctic region and the desert rat in the desert and the people that need to live where they're supposed to live, live where they're supposed to live. So we don't have mismatches of our genome, our epigenome and the environment we find ourselves in. So with that, I think that's enough for today. I, again, greatly appreciate Dr. Schiff, his time, your time, the beauty of your lives, what you give to your children, hug them every day, tell them you love them, and then build their garden so that they have a place to grow in their own way. Let's not control them. Let's not be too carpenterish. Let's really just give them the free space the sun, the water, the nourishment, the cofactors of growth to be the best versions of themselves, however they show up. That's it for today, folks. Have a great day. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and is not a substitute for advice and or treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This is purely information for you to take, listen to, learn from, But always talk to your provider about any issues or questions that you may have.